So good morning, welcome to Freedom Church. My name's Brian, I'm part of uh, Freedom Church family and I'm really excited this morning to be continuing our series in 1 Peter. And this is particularly exciting for me because these verses have been on my heart for many, many months um, and God, I've been meditating on these verses for quite a long time and God has been bringing them to me. So it's a real privilege to be able to share with you this morning what I feel God has been imparting to me through that time um, and just to be able to share it with you. And Josh did a fantastic job uh, last week, I think we'll all agree, as he always does, in introducing the series on, and on how Peter, even as he begins to write uh, the address at the heading of the letter, overflows with the powerful reminder of who these believers are in light of who God is and what he has done with to with them and what is continued to doing in them and that was just so powerful and you know we felt we we kind of unpacked that they are elect exiles called into a rich inheritance and yet still foreigners uh, where they live and peter's encouragement to us is that both their election and their exile are according to god's plan and they're work towards making us holy and obedient to jesus and it was just really uh, really good to kind of begin that series with that kind of real powerful reminder and, and we're going to continue that now so let's jump straight in to the verses if you have your bibles on your phone or in paper please we're going to read from 1 peter 1 verses 3 to 7 i'm going to read from the esv so if you all say something slightly different it'll mean the same thing just a slightly different wording that's not a problem and it says this blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is so much power and truth in these verses. The, you know, the power of the gospel, the, the, the good news is packed into a couple of short paragraphs here. But one of the things I really love about it is when you, as you read it, one of the things that I love is before Peter even gets into the bulk of the letter, he finishes his greeting and boom, it hits us off with something really powerful, a call to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is deliberate, I believe, by Peter. He's trying to, his teaching is he's setting the tone for us, revealing to us the only response that we can have to all that is about to unpack is to worship. Everything he is about to teach and reveal to us should lead us to praise and worship. And he hasn't really said anything yet um, on already he's worshipping. So we know he's already getting giddy and worshipping, going, oh, praise God. He's not even started telling us what he needs to tell us yet, but he's already worshipping. And it's because he, God has revealed some very powerful truths to him and then he's sharing them with us. So there are four things in these verses that I want to unpack a little bit today, which I hope will result in us worshipping and our response of worship and praise to God as we understand the truth and the power of what Peter is sharing with us. 
And the first one is this. It starts with God's great mercy. That first part of the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. Now, if you ever wonder if our God is merciful, the answer is that there is great mercy from God, according to his great mercy. And Peter's moved by this. You see, Peter understands the significance of the mercy of God. He understands um, what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, what that meant for all of mankind. He understood that things had changed now, that the gates, the floodgates of heaven were open, the curtain is torn in two, we have access to God. And it's not just for the Jews anymore, it's for all people, it's for the Romans, the Greeks, the Gentiles. Everyone gets a piece of this now, it's open for all. He understood that. But you know what? Peter, more than most, had also experienced the mercy of God personally. And I think one great example of this um, is in John 21, when Jesus calls Peter back into relationship after his denial at the crucifixion. So in that, we know when the crucifixion was happening, um, there was people saying to Peter, weren't you one of his disciples? Weren't you one of the people who followed him? And he's like, I didn't know him. I don't know who he is. I wasn't, it wasn't me. And he flees in fear. Now, Jesus in this story in John 21 could have quite easily have rejected Peter. He would have been well within his rights to do so. Peter had abandoned him and renounced him publicly. But in his love, in Jesus' love and mercy, we see a beautiful scene as Jesus reconciles and forgives Peter and calls him back into relationship with him. He says, Peter, do you love me? He's like, of course I love you. But, and, then, and then in the end he says, follow me, which is an echo of what he said to Peter right at the start. Come and follow me. And he's re-inviting him into that relationship. That is a beautiful image of God's mercy that Peter is experiencing personally. You see, God's mercy is according to his will. It's not something we initiate. It's not something we can force God to give. He chooses to give it. He initiates it. He's the one who chooses or elects us. He is the one who has made the way for us to receive his mercy. It's a God-focused thing. It's not really to do with anything we can do. Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The whole of scripture is an unfolding of God's love and mercy for us. And I love later in the verse in Ephesians 2, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, all of scripture right from the start is, is shaped and is leading to Jesus, to the greatest act of God's mercy for us. God himself dying on a cross, being punished for the things we did wrong, for our sin, so that we can be forgiven and been brought back into relationship with him. In John 3, 16, 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This act of mercy is an act of God. It's God initiated. 
but what what does this mercy lead to where is it taking us what's the result of the mercy that we have encountered and received in verse three peter's great at this i love this if you these verses are great because he basically tells you all the answers it's like kind of he says it's kind of like he goes the answer is one what what, what the answer is four what does two add two equal he tells you before you even get there so it says in verse three according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. So my second thing I want to unpack is, what does it mean to be born again into a living hope? Again, we see clearly it's God who is the one who initiates this. It's God who does the work. He is the one who causes us to be born again. And this new birth is God work, God's work. His mercy, not our work, that produces a new being called a child of God an exile and an alien in the world, which I think is a bit backwards because, you know, we're born into the world as, you know, part of a, of a family or whatever. But actually, when we're born again of God, we're born into being different from the world, almost like born into as exiles and aliens because we're no longer the same. We are a new creation. We're something different now, uh, shaped and moulded in the image of God, born through Christ and through his death and resurrection. And it's so it's quite a different view. We're born into being exiles, which feels pretty strange. Um, but what is living hope? The New Testament idea of living hope seems to be very different from our normal thinking about what hope is. See, we might say to someone, oh, do you think Hull City will get promoted this season? And the pub, they may, they'll probably say no, but they might say, they might say, I don't know, but I hope so. I really hope they get promoted this season. And in other words, Hope, as we typically think about it, is a desire for some future thing that we're not really certain of attaining. It's something when we say, we, often when we talk about hope of something, there's no guarantee, is there? We're often saying, I hope that happens. I hope, that, I, hope I get the job. I hope this. But this, for us, often hope is this thing where it's, it's a hope, but it's not, there's no guarantee with it. I might get it, it'd be great. I really hope I do, but we're no guarantee. But that's not the type of hope that Peter and the rest of the New Testament thinks about or talks about. See, later in um, chapter one, in verse 13, Peter says, hope fully in the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not saying hope a little bit or if, if, if it can happen, it'd be great. He is saying hope fully in this. He doesn't mean we should be desire it, but be uncertain of it. It's not, this isn't a normal hope. The coming of Christ is a matter of complete confidence for all the writers of the New Testament. There's no doubt in their mind that Christ is returning. And it was great to hear um, Jackie talking about that, like about the promises and the things. And, you know, even Zechariah, who's foreshadowing and prophesying things that will happen hundreds of years later, they happened. And because of things like that, we have complete confidence that when God says he'll do something, he'll do it, don't we? We know that the promises of God and that when, he, when we've got hope in something, we can be assured. And that's the hope that, that the New Testament teachers and apostles had. It means being intensely kind of desirous and fully confident that Jesus Christ is coming again with grace for his people. Another example outside of 1 Peter would be in Hebrews 6, verse 11, where it says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realising the full assurance 
of hope to the end. So we could define um, hope in the New Testament as a sense of full assurance or strong confidence that God is going to do good things for us in the future. He is going to do what he said he will do. Our God is trustworthy. And if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. But there's something even more peculiar about this Christian hope that we're reading about because Peter calls it a living hope. But what does that even mean? What is a living hope? So I guess the easiest way to look at that would be, well, what's the opposite of living hope? That would be dead hope, wouldn't it? Dead hope. And that kind of might bring to mind for some of you um, from James 2, where he talks about dead faith, where he says faith without works is dead. And, and that's it. And then James says this type of faith is barren. It's fruitless. It's unproductive. So living faith and the, by analogy, living hope would be fertile. It'd be fruitful. It'd be productive hope. Living hope is a hope that has power and produces changes in lives. So Christian hope is a strong confidence in God, which has power to produce changes in how we live. And the reason we know our hope is alive is because Jesus is alive, isn't it? We know Jesus lives. He was resurrected. In Colossians 1, verse 18, it's a great image. It's one of my favourite kind of um, that like kind of paragraphs of scripture that talks about God's Jesus' supremacy. And it says, and in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be permanent or preeminent. It's when a dyslexia kicks in. They make, why do they make it so hard to pronounce words in the Bible? I never know. Um, basically means that he's the first, he's, the, he's, he's at the top of the chip, he's, a, he's at the pyramid top in a sense. He caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. And now we are raised from death into life through Jesus. That is the promise. That is the living hope that we will live forever. We've talked about it already this morning, haven't we, that we will be eternally with God in the, in, in the, in the end. When Jesus returns, we live with him in eternity. And verse 1 makes it even more, uh, verse 21 in, in 1 Peter makes it really explicit. It says, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, the resurrection, like the, like the mercy, is about God. God did it. It's, it's, it's started by God. It's initiated by God. So we trust in God. We hope in God. Peter, Peter's response is, blessed be God. He worships because he knows this is something he had no control over. He couldn't do it. This is God started it. God initiates it. God does it. And this has huge significance for us because now we are born again into a living hope. We are now born again as sons and daughters of the most high God. And with that comes something pretty amazing, which we can touch on in, the, in my next part, which is that there is a promise of an inheritance now. Now we are sons and daughters. There is an inheritance for us. He has caused, as it says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, God promises an inheritance to his newborn children, to his newborns, those who are born again into living hope. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe and have given your life to him, then you are one of those people. That inheritance is yours. 
That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like, let that sink in. You are a child of God and you will inherit everything. You are heirs to everything with Christ, through Christ. That's an amazing truth that I think sometimes we forget. We kind of go, yeah, well, I believe in God and I'll be in eternity with him. But we forget what the gravity of that means to be heirs, to be those who will inherit everything through Christ, to share with him and in him all that he has won for us on the cross. See, parents leave inheritance to their children. It's not vice versa, is it? We don't. Parents leave the inheritance for the child. And God is the giver here. All the way through these passages, Peter's being really clear that God is the fountain. God is the one who is overflowing and we are the ones who receive. We're the receivers at every point, receivers of his mercy, receivers of new birth, receive, receivers through the resurrection and receivers of an inheritance. All of those things, God is the one who initiates. God is the one who starts it. And an inheritance is something you get, not because of you, but because of who your family are, isn't it? Like how we qualify is nothing to do with us. None of us say, I'd love to be born into a rich family so I can inherit all their money. We don't get any choice in that, do we? We inherit because of who we're born to. And in the same way, God elects and chooses us and we are born into his family through his election. And because of that, we, the inheritance that he has is given to us as his children. But what is this inheritance that's ours? What, what is it? And we touched on this in the, again in the worship. There's a, a sense of, you know, there's the part of the inheritance which we is to come. And there's the part of the inheritance which we can experience some of it now, um, which is kind of weird in a way, because normally inheritances don't come to later. But there's elements of the now and what we call the now and the not yet. It's like there's the not yet. There's this stuff that we can't, we can't receive until, Jesus, until Christ returns. But there are parts of the inheritance that we get glimmers of now that we can see now and enjoy now that give a four. It's like a foretelling of what the kingdom will look like when Christ, what what God's kingdom will look like when Christ returns. We get to see some of it now. Healings, miracles. We get to see people released from stuff. We get to see people kind of brought into fullness of life. We are released into fullness of life through Jesus. And they're all foreshadowings of, of the full kingdom that we will experience in all of its fullness when Christ returns. So the inheritance can't be anything of the world. Some of us may have already received inheritance from our family. And let's be honest, some of us may have already been thinking about or thought about some of the things that they'd like to inherit when that time comes. Sounds a bit grim, but I think we, it does happen. We do do it. Um, maybe heirlooms or things that are in the family and you think when you know my family, my pet mum or dad pass, or that I would like that to come to me. I'd like that to be my inheritance to keep that but the inheritance we have is is very different you see the truth is none of them things we inherit for our family will last they're temporary and they will fade and they will return back to the earth and the story of the prodigal son kind of gives us a clear picture of that where he receives this inheritance um, before his dad has, has even died and he goes off and he squanders his wealth it's gone it fades and he's left with nothing eating from pig's will that was a, a short, it was a short-sighted part of his inheritance. And it was a, it was an earthly inheritance. But actually God's inheritance is different because what God is promising here is eternal. The inheritance we have cannot fade. It's undefiled. The inheritance we have is eternity with God. We've talked about this. 
the ultimate inheritance that we will get is where we will dwell with God in, in the new heaven and earth. And he will walk among us again as he did in the garden. He will dwell among his people as he did in the beginning. That is the awesome and amazing inheritance that we have. And we see glimmers of it now as God will come now and do it on, and impart stuff now. We can see healing now as we will see complete healing in the end. We can see, uh, you know, the miraculous now as we will experience the miraculous all constantly in the, in the end. But earthly inheritance isn't like that. But all earthly inheritance has something in common. Death and finite existence or limited existence. See, we inherit through death, don't we? Like often, that's how we inherit stuff. And what we receive is never something that will go into eternity with us. It's not something we can take with us. But what we inherit through Jesus comes actually comes through life. It's reversed. Jesus, like in many ways, turns it on its head. We inherit the kingdom of God through the resurrection of Christ, through the fact that Jesus doesn't stay dead. He actually comes back to life which is an amazing kind of powerful image and truth that that's how we inherit life because Jesus is conquered death. We're no longer subject to the punishment of sin and death. Jesus, Jesus has power over Hades and over, and over, over death. And now he, can, he gives us life eternal through his resurrection, through that authority he now has. And I love how Paul expresses this in Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I was saying to Josh just before we started, I, I, as I've been preparing for this, I've just loved how scripture just kind of, it's so interwoven, like it's so, you can just see the thread of God's hand and God's, God's um, authority and sovereignty over scripture because it all just, it flows together like a beautiful kind of piece of um, classical music. And I love it how, how you can go into all the different books of the New Testament and the Old Testament and it all flows and mingles together beautifully to create this amazing picture. It's, it's just such a powerful image that we're reading right now in Peter. But then it gets a bit dark. So we go from this awesome, like, yay, inheritance, mercy, resurrection power, living hope. And then we go into verses six and seven and, it, and Peter, Peter says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, it, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, uh, Peter, are you saying we're going to suffer? Yep. OK, that doesn't sound very nice after what you just said. Yeah, but there's going to be purpose to your suffering, which is my fourth point, purpose in suffering. So the Old Testament commands us, delight ourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and to serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100, verse 2, and to rejoice before the Lord our God in all our undertakings, Deuteronomy 12, verse 18. Jesus commands us to rejoice and leap for joy, 
for your reward is great in heaven, Luke 6, 23, and tells us these things have been spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. John 15, 11, the apostle Paul commands us rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4, verse 4. He tells us that the fruit of the spirit of joy is joy, Galatians 5, 22. He then says that the worker, he is a worker with us for our joy, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, and that, our, and that he lives for the advancement of the joy of our faith, Philippians 1, 25, and that God loves the cheerful giver. So why does Jesus and the apostles teach so much on suffering? Like, it's, why do we go from all that? It's saying, be joyful. Woo, it's all great. And then they talk loads about suffering. It's like, did they, did they not understand? It's like the topic comes up loads in Peter. So please hear me. I'll only touch on this. We're going to talk about suffering a bit more as we go through this, this series. But, but what was going on? We can see clearly from scripture, God is saying, be joyful. He's saying, be rejoice and delight in me, delight in the Lord. Was this a mistake? Did, did they not know or understand that we were going to suffer? But we know that's not true. Jesus knows what it meant to suffer. Read about the lives of the apostles. You know that they understood what it meant to suffer. So what does it mean? How do we understand suffering in this light? Are we supposed to pause our delight in rejoicing while we suffer? And the simple answer is no. Now hear me right, I'm not trying to undermine your suffering. God cares deeply about your suffering. Jesus understands your suffering and he can relate and identify with it as he suffered himself. And I know for some who are with us on this call this morning, they're in suffering now or they've experienced suffering, whether it be through health or through, whether it be through mental health, health, whether it be through situations in their home, their work and um, broken relationships. We maybe you may be in suffering right now and that's not, I don't want to undermine, God understands that. But what Peter is trying to teach us here is that all that he's just said in them previous verses, he's saying to us, look, do you not see though, all that stuff is eternal. That can't be taken from you. Your suffering doesn't change that God's mercy is on you. Your suffering doesn't mean that you're, you don't have living hope. Your suffering doesn't mean that the resurrection meant nothing for you. He's saying it has purpose because we suffer now for a while. But we're always looking to what is ahead, to Christ's return, to the day in Revelation. It talks about the time when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we will dwell with him eternally. In suffering, it's God uses all things for the good of those who love him. We, we read that in scripture. And suffering is one of those areas where I think that rings more true than most. And I think uh, as a church, and I think even though particularly in the West, we don't always have a good understanding of suffering. Not when it comes to faith. We have understanding in some of our life, but not to the same gravity and maybe some other people do. And I think we need to rediscover our theology of suffering and understand what it means to suffer for the gospel. Because in suffering, we find dependence on God. You see, it's easy, isn't it, to say in them fair weather times when things are going great, how easy is it to say, oh, I trust God, God's amazing. It's easy, isn't it? It's a lot easier. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have good times and that you should always suffer. But actually, in suffering... We truly know what it means to trust God. We truly know what it means to be dependent on God. 
because there's no way we could live through it, get through it without him. He gives purpose to our suffering and he actually turns our suffering and creates beautiful things from it, whether that be trust, resilience on, you know, trusting in him. He creates a sense of, of, of our identity being based in, in Jesus, in Christ and not in our circumstances. They're all fruit that you cannot, that is not worth avoiding for the sake of not going through suffering. And I say that from experience. Myself and Sarah, as some of you know, went through many years of infertility. That wasn't an easy time. That was brutal. We were suffering. There were days when we didn't want, when I didn't, at times I was like, I don't know if I can trust you anymore, God. But, I, but actually through that season, me and Sarah, what we did is we just had to get on our knees and say, God, we don't get this. We don't understand it. We don't like it but you are good. I know your mercies are new for us every day. We know that we have an inheritance. All of these things Peter's telling us, and we're going to trust you because we know that ultimately this is temporary. And ultimately, even if we never have children, God, you tell us that we're enough. You tell us that we're good enough and that we will be with you in eternity. And all of this stuff, you know, in, in, in light of that, as painful as it is right now, it will fail into insignificance when I stand in front of Jesus and he says, welcome home. And so we can have hope in suffering. God's mercy remains the same in our suffering. Our hope remains alive regardless of our situation. And nothing, let me just say that again, nothing can take away your inheritance, that eternal life that is to come, that God bestows on his children. In God's design, our distress or suffering is like that of the refining of fire. You know, it talks about the, the being refined in fire, the gold. When gold is refined, it's melted. All the imperfections and the, the rubbish floats to the top and is scraped away. And the end product of that gold is more, it's worth far more. And it's the same with our faith. Suffering refines our faith. You trust his promises, but there are impurities in our thinking in our faith, uh, in, in elements of the way we approach stuff, our sinful thoughts, cynicism, our tendencies to rely on things that aren't God. And actually suffering refines that. It pulls them imperfections away, bends them off. And at the end of it, you're left with this pure faith where you truly know what it means to rely on God and truly know what it means to be committed to him throughout all circumstances, all seasons of our life. So how do we respond? Well, we, we respond the way Peter starts. We worship. Because what can you say when God offers you all this stuff? Thank you. Cheers, mate. That's a lovely little gift there. It's like, don't really sum it up. The only thing you can do is go, praise God. Like, wow, my mind is just blown apart. What, how, when, who, me, what? Huh? And you're like, I can't, I can't even fathom this. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to praise you. God, you are good. You are faithful. You are holy. You are, you are the one who is worthy of all worship and praise because actually I've done nothing to deserve any of this, but you give it freely to me. So Peter understands completely. The only response we can have to all of this is to worship God. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to worship because that is the appropriate response. We're going to praise God. So I'd like to invite Stefan back um, to sing. And we're just going to worship. I just want you to just reflect on some of the stuff we've been talking about. Allow it to sink in and then allow it to pour back out to God in praise.